From Covenant Shreveport, this is Origins of the Faith. Chapter 6, The Rule of Books, Formation of the Bible. So this week we are getting into, I think, one of the biggest questions that people have, which is, how in the world did we get the Bible? Yeah. I mean, the Bible is the center of Christian faith for all of us, especially for like American Protestant, well, not even Protestant, just American Christians in general. Like the Bible, as it should be, is rightly seen as a primary feature of this uh, faith system that we are a part of. And yet, man, I found that many people know very little about the Bible itself. Not not just like the content of the Bible, but where did the Bible even come from and how did we get it? And and that's something we've talked a lot about in, in our previous course that's er, right. earlier this year uh, called like Foundations of Effective Bible Study. Episode four or five, I think. Yeah. We, we really dug into a lot of that, but we're also going to look at it here, maybe not quite as in-depth. And more through the lens of chapter six here in in Shelley's Church History in Plain Language, but but yeah, Taylor, I mean, this is just a big question that a lot of people have, and there's a lot of confusion out there about how the Bible came to be. Yeah, and I think one of the things that this chapter does really well is it's it's continuing um, the story. So. Whereas before, we looked at the formation of the Bible just kind of on its own, and we looked at it historically. This chapter specifically deals with that in the context of what Shelley's already covered, which is as the church is growing, how does the Bible, or especially the New Testament, but it talks about both the Old and the New, but how does the Bible get assembled in the face of persecution and in the face of or in response to these heresies that are floating around? Mm. So that's, that's, I think, most of what this chapter digs into, which is great because it covers it a little differently than we did last time, and that may be yeah. helpful for folks who want to get kind of both takes on it. Yeah. Yeah, what we did was really look more at the actual writing and um, development of Scripture. And, and as we talked about in that class, you know, the Old Testament was pretty much set by the time of Christ. You know, like there, there's nothing added to what we would think of as the Old Testament during mm-hmm. or after the time of Jesus, right? And and Jesus clearly believed the Old Testament. He clearly believed the Hebrew Scriptures, which um, we sometimes call the Tanakh. Mm-hmm. Um, and, and the Hebrew Scriptures primarily, primarily made up of three different sections. You have the Torah, which are the first five books of our Bible. Uh, you have what's called the writings. Um, and then you have the prophets. And those are the three sections. And the prophets include uh, what, you, what you would expect to some extent, but there are also a few books that are not included in there, like Daniel primarily. Um, and that's included in kind of the grab bag of the Old Testament, which are the writings or what's called the Nevi'im as well. And that includes the poetical literature like the Psalms and Proverbs and Song of Songs and um, and then books, random books like Esther are, are also a part of the writings as well. I think you maybe flipped it. I flipped it? Ketuvim. Ketuvim, I'm sorry. Thank you. The Nevi'im are the prophets. Yes. Thank you, Taylor. Um, I'm here for you. (laughs) But but yeah, so so all of that's pretty much set in stone. And and 
yet during uh, the time in between the end of the Old Testament and the beginning of the New Testament, uh, those scrolls are translated into Greek yeah. from the original Hebrew. And that's what the people in Jesus's day have the most access to, it seems. Mm-hmm. It's these Greek translations of the Hebrew scriptures, which are known as the Septuagint. Mm-hmm. Um, and the Septuagint also included a collection of books that we'll talk about a little bit today, known as the Apocrypha. Yeah. Um, and so that's that's a big question that people have is is what exactly is the Apocrypha? Mm-hmm. So, um, so then the question really becomes the New Testament. Where did the New Testament come from? Who wrote it? How did we get it? And how did these books become quote unquote holy scripture? Yeah. So is that is that a good flyover? I think so. Uh, yeah, that <laughs> covers a couple of the things that I was going to mention, but yeah. maybe we'll we'll probably go over them again. Anyway. Yeah, yeah, yeah. But uh, yeah, so Shelley kind of starts off this chapter by noting a shift uh, in the methods that Christians are being persecuted. So it goes from the people to the books. So while the people are being persecuted, but the church is still just exploding across the Roman Empire, the next obvious solution is let's just burn all the books. Let's yeah, let's yeah. find their scriptures and get rid of them. Which that's a, that's such a common thing, isn't it? it like is, just yeah. throughout human history, if we can get rid of these books, these these nosy people will just stop believing it. Fahrenheit four fifty one. That's right. Anybody? Yeah. 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 You're right. Um, so over time, this spread of Christianity was aided by having all of these books around that spoke about Jesus as Lord, mm. and then commanded people who followed him to act like it. Um, so. We noted in the, the last chapter that Catholic Christianity is what became orthodoxy. Orthodox belief was biblical, and so then it begs the question, what is the Bible, and how did we get it? You mentioned, you mentioned the, two, um, the two testaments or, or covenants or really just promises. And again, this is stuff that we've talked about, I know. But we have the Old Testament that records God's promise in his relationship with the Hebrew people. But explicit throughout all of that text is the thought that that promise to Israel uh, always meant was always meant to lead to the redemption of all nations. So, on the heels of that, we get the New Testament, which begins, which is beginning to be written. That was a weird one to work through. It's beginning <laughs> to be written right after um, Jesus's life and ministry. Right, and so we have. A continuation of the story. This isn't something new. This isn't something wholly different. It's it's a continuation of the exact same story. We believe this as Christians, namely because Jesus believed it. And so this is something yeah, that we yeah. see. And and Shelley mentions this in John uh, chapter ten and Luke chapter twenty four. I know you talked about this the other day as well. I think mm-hmm. on the road to Emmaus, mm-hmm. if Jesus is willing to say that the law, the prophets, and the writing all spoke to him then we as Christians should be willing to believe that the law, the prophets, and the writing all spoke to him. And so that's right. that's why the Old Testament continues having importance for the Christian church. And then again, the questions would be, how did we get it? So how did we get the old? How did we get the new? And, and you're right, the, the Old Testament had been pretty well codified. Nobody was really messing with it. And and the thing that Shelley points out, and this is this was very helpful for me because the Apocrypha is a huge issue for some folks. Right, right. I grew up in the Roman Catholic Church, so I, I knew about it. But even folks who don't know a ton about it, 
know what it is and know that there are these other books. And yeah, if you've ever picked up a Bible somewhere and went, huh, I, what are these books? Yeah. You know, what who's are, Sirach? Who's Tobit? Yeah. You know? Yeah, it's um, it could be something you've run across at some point in time. Mm-hmm. And so Shelley attributes this mainly to what you mentioned, which is cultural differences. Mm-hmm. So before the time of Jesus, as all this Greek culture is spreading through the Roman Empire, that's when these Hellenists, as we mentioned before, converting to Judaism, they've got two choices. You're going to learn what's increasingly becoming an outdated language, that is Hebrew, and read the Tanakh, or you're going to copy the Hebrew scriptures into the lingua franca throughout much of the Roman Empire, which is the Greek language. Mm. And so in doing this, um, th- because obviously that's what folks opted for, is let's, let's get this thing in our own language. Let's get it in Greek. In doing this, translators included some of the other books that the Jewish people, the Hebrew people, thought were helpful, these what we call intertestamental or second temple writings, right. these other books, Maccabees, Tobit, Sirach, uh, Judith. And, and, and intertestamental means that they were written in that 400-year period in between the Old Testament and the New Testament. That's right. It's so the intertestamental period. Yeah. yeah. So you you end the book of Malachi, and then you have this silence of divine prophecy. Mm. But you do have the apocrypha that's written here, and these are, again, these are thought of as helpful books. I don't think anybody was was none of the Jewish people were decrying these as heresy or anything right. like that. They just weren't divinely inspired, mm-hmm. and that was universally accepted among the Palestinian Jewish people. Mm -hmm. So when those books get copied into Greek as kind of some extra helpful resources, you end up with what you call the Palestinian canon, Mm. which is our Tanakh, our Old Testament, and what the Protestant church is going to be most familiar with, and the Alexandrian canon. That's going to be Alexandrian because that's where the Septuagint was created and copied. Mm. It had these other books added into it, and they became more or less canonized by some of the folks in the Western Christian or Western Roman Empire. Mm-hmm. Um, that's man, that might be kind of a tricky flyover of this, but basically that's where the apocrypha. The, the, it was always there. It's not like it just popped up somewhere. It wasn't. It wasn't just written and added in in the 1600s. These were these were books that had been around and had been helpful for the Jewish yes. people for a long time. But what you're getting at is that they were never universally agreed upon as, That's right. as being holy scripture. They were never recognized in the the Tanakh, the mm-hmm. the Jewish scripture. Yeah. So that's just the difference between the 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 books as we have it, the 39 books in our Old Testament versus mm-hmm. the. I guess it's anywhere from like what twelve to fifteen. There's or so an additional more? twelve to fifteen books. Yeah. yeah, in the apocrypha. So anyway, those things are both out there, both being accepted. But w- what we're mostly dealing with here is how do we get the twenty-seven books of the New Testament? Mm-hmm. And so this is uh, there's a few factors that Shelley goes through in in kind of the second half of this chapter, um, and this is more stuff that we also talked about when we were going through uh, canonization. What what denoted a book as being part of the canon? And the three things that Shelley really points out are these books are self-evidencing or transformational for people. Uh, these books hold Catholic acceptance or universal acceptance among the church, and they are apostolic or tied to an apostle. Mm. And so these are the these are 
the three main um, factors for Shelley, and I, I think that would those three would certainly hold up for for most scholars. There may mm-hmm. be a few more that you would throw in there, uh, truthfulness, and but these things kind of run hand in hand. Th- these three, yeah, are, are really the big three. In in our previous class, the the words that we used were apostolicity, catholicity, and orthodoxy. Yeah. Which is basically what he's saying here. So when he talks about the self-evidencing quality, what what he's ultimately getting at is the fact that these books a- agree with what is accepted as holy scripture. Yeah. Right? So they they're not teaching something that's counter to what is found in the larger kind of codex or library of scripture. Right. So so they are orthodox. Mm-hmm. Right, um, they are uh, Catholic in that what ultimately come to be the books of the New Testament are accepted by the whole universal church, the whole Catholic Church, mm-hmm. as being holy scripture. Yeah, which is why which is why the Apocrypha is is not included because the whole Catholic Church does not agree. That's right. That those books are uh, inspired by God. And then the third piece, and I would say probably the biggest piece in all of this, is apostolicity, which is that connection to the apostles. Yeah, this had to do with its validity. Yeah, so there's not a book in the New Testament that doesn't have some sort of firsthand or secondhand direct connection to an apostle. Yeah. Yeah, and and of these three, I think the the biggest one for me, especially since we had already talked at length about Catholicity and apostolicity, Apostolicity, yes, <laughs> apostolicness. You don't use that word all the time. Yeah, man, twelve times today. everyday conversation, <laughs> right? So the biggest one uh, for me was the self-evidencing quality, mm. because Shelley takes it a step beyond uh, just being orthodox. So the, these books were more than than just true, because there were other books written in this time that were that were also true and it much like the old testament apocrypha there are yes. letters and books written in the first few centuries that are true and helpful that do not rise to the the category of canonization in the new testament and and the part of that formula that shelley really really digs into is its transformational quality uh, he mentions that these books are divinely inspired one because they often make that claim in the text but two, he says, uh, these, these books that are truly the word of God carry a uniqueness and have always exercised a transforming power upon the lives of many who read them. Hmm. Uh, then he goes into the story of Justin Martyr, who in the first couple centuries was scouring philosophical and religious texts for truth before finally reading the Christian scripture and developing faith. So this is this self-evidencing quality uh, the, the transformational component of this, it may be the least objective, like it's the least empirical to say this this book is transformational and this one isn't. But over time, I, I think for anyone who's been a Christian for some time and who has read through these things, you can see exactly what that idea is. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Yeah, absolutely. And, and you're right on in saying that there are, because, well, let's, I guess the, the New Testament canon which, by the way, is just the word we use to describe the, the uh, what the 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 combined the books, yeah, the the corpus of 
uh, all of these books together is the canon, C-A-N-O-N, um, that it's at least like 250 A.D. before there is, to our knowledge, a list of the books that are in our New Testament today. Um, and I believe it's the, the church father origin who has that list in like 250 AD. Yeah, and I think there's partial lists maybe before it. There are, there are other lists, yeah. Um, then it's like 350 AD when the church father Athanasius has that same list. And um, so sometimes the New Testament, you will hear it referred to as the Athanasian canon mm-hmm. because it was the list of books that he considered to be holy scripture. And Athanasius is a significant figure um, in the church in the 300s um, and plays a big role in things like the Council of Nicaea as mm-hmm. well. Um, but it, it takes time. It takes several hundred years for the New Testament canon to be agreed upon by the church. And there's not really a moment where... Uh, there's like a church council or something where they vote on all of these books yeah, or we, something. We got to do this canon thing now. Yeah, it it just it. I, my sense is in a very organic way. Um, it's not like it's not like the church forms some kind of committee to figure out hey which books are holy scripture and which aren't. But that just in a very organic way, as local churches interacted with these books, they put greater stock in the ones that had connections to the apostles. They put greater stock in the ones that um, seemed to be helpful in the life of the church, and they put greater stock in the ones that seemed to be teaching orthodox Christian faith. Mm-hmm. And over time, those books become the New Testament canon. Yeah. Um, and But you're right on in saying there are a lot of other books that are out there as well. There's a whole collection that are known as the Apostolic Fathers, mm-hmm. who are which are which are writings from basically that first generation after the apostles. Um, so we've talked about somebody like Polycarp, and there's Ignatius and people like that who are writing during that time period. Uh, mm-hmm. Justin Martyr is one of those. Yeah. Um, the Didache, uh, which we've talked about, is a is a work that would fall into that Apostolic Fathers camp. It's it's something that the church generally viewed as being a good, helpful book, but it didn't rise to the level of Holy Scripture. Yeah. Um, but that doesn't, and and this is true with the Apocrypha as well. It doesn't mean they're bad. Like it doesn't mean they're evil books. It right. doesn't mean they're heretical books. Even um, even though there are some things in there that are, uh, I think, a, a bit suspect. Um, so I think that's just important for people to remember. Yeah. Yeah. And, and one of the things you said was that this canon developed over time. It wasn't, it wasn't all done in one fell swoop. It wasn't done because of any one thing, but Shelley does point out. So while the, while the canon would have just been decided upon by the church as it developed its doctrine from Orthodox belief and the different practices, it was sped up. The process was sped up a little bit by the presence of heresies. And so mm-hmm. we can yeah. jump right back into almost expanding a little bit on, on the last chapter, but with some new guys. Right. Yeah, so yeah. Some, some new faces show up on top of Gnosticism, Docetism, and the Ebionite heresies that we talked about. And those those faces are Martian and Montanus. Mm-hmm. I, I want to say Montanus. <laughs> you want to get Western <laughs> with that one. But yeah. uh, Shelley has a quote. 
And it's kind of at the end of this little section, and then we can backtrack and look at all of it. But he says, if Martian, Marcion maybe Mm -hmm. is better. Martian is that he's a little guy from Mars. No, if Marcion, (laughs) a heretic, nudged the churches into thinking about forming a New Testament, another troublemaker, Montanus, forced the churches into thinking about closing it. So we have Mm -hmm. two new guys who pop up and one of them really speeds the church along the the Catholic church and saying, Hey, we've really got to nail down what it is we want being spread through all of these Jesus communities before some of these heresies really take foot, really take a foothold. Mm. And then at the end of it, Montanus shows up and the church reacts again and saying, okay, we've got to stop anybody from, from claiming an addition to scripture. So, mm-hmm. Yeah. Marcion is a guy who believes in a clear distinction between the Old and New Testaments. Right. And this is based on his picture of God. So he says, the Old Testament God's only concerned for the Jewish people, and he, and he has wrath for everyone else. So there's a skewed picture of Yahweh, mm-hmm. and he takes that forward and says, because of this, a lot of the books that are being circulated within these churches, these New Testament books... Are, are heresy in Marcion's eyes. So, right. so he says you got to reject the Old Testament if you're a Christian. And then he says that you need to get rid of any of the books that seem to favor the Jewish people, mm. which leaves him with apparently part of Luke's gospel and like a handful <laughs> of Paul's letters. Yeah, yeah. Which is nuts. Yeah. But the church's response here is condemn his actions, condemn Marcion's actions, double down on the importance of the Old Testament. And this I love because it explains something that I think you and I had even talked about before. Order the New Testament in a way that bridged the gospel accounts with Paul's writings. Mm -hmm. And that natural bridge was Luke's book of Acts. And so it's almost like they took one of Marcion's claims, and and not to say that this is the only reason that Luke acts is is interrupted by John in our in our right listing because the, just just so everybody knows uh, the Gospel of Luke and the Book of Acts were both written by the same person and were probably originally meant to be together as as sort of not necessarily one, one book but one kind of compendium Luke yeah. Acts and yet they get separated by John's Gospel in our New Testament yeah and so so one of the things. Uh, I guess there's a couple things going on. One is let's keep the synoptic gospels together, Matthew, mm-hmm. Mark, and Luke. Yep. Uh, John comes after them, but then by by using the other half of Luke's writings, Acts, to flow straight into Paul's writings, mm-hmm. which are more or less ordered longest to shortest. Yeah. By by using that bridge, um, they kind of the church fought against Marcion's claims, like right to his face. By using his favorite author, he would only accept Luke. And then a couple of Paul's letters, they just put all that right there at the beginning of the canon and said, these are the books. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So I, I like that that was their way of, of combating um, this, what was a heresy, but was essentially just kind of like Jefferson taking the pen knife to the, not just the gospel, but to all of the Bible and, and right. picking the parts you like. Yeah, so Thomas Jefferson is famous for, he was not a Christian. Uh, Thomas Jefferson was a deist in that he believed in a creator God, but he believed in a creator God who was like removed from creation. Yeah. Um, and he was a proud deist. Um, and so he he appreciated, as, as many 
people have throughout human history. I think uh, Shelley mentioned Gandhi in the last chapter, appreciated certain parts of Jesus, appreciated certain parts of Jesus's like ethical teaching mm-hmm. um, and this idea of loving other people. Um, I think that's something that a lot of people can get on board with. Uh, Jefferson took issue with anything remotely supernatural in the gospel accounts. And so there's a, if you go to the, I think, I think it's in the Smithsonian today, if you go to the Smithsonian, they have something called the Jefferson Bible, which was Jefferson's personal, um, it's kind of a notebook, but, but he basically took a razor blade to the new Testament and cut out anything that was remotely supernatural and, uh, you know, got rid of it and kept the things that are more sort of like the ethical moral teaching of Jesus. Yeah. So you might say he was an Ebionite. Yeah, in a way. <laughs> he's just kind of creating his own thing. He's humanizing Jesus and that's removing right. his divinity. And, um, and and yeah, that's one of the things that you see with all of this. Even today, uh, there's just nothing new under the sun anymore. Mm-hmm. Like Christianity has seen just about every possible um, heretical teaching that could, that could pop up. And even things that pop up today that seem new are really just a version of things that have come before. So That's what right. Marcion is doing here is is essentially sort of a proto-Gnostic thing, mm-hmm. right? Like he, he, he kind of claims to have secret knowledge, and that secret knowledge is the God of the Old Testament is different from the God of the New Testament. Yeah. And in, in Gnosticism, if you remember, there's, there's all of these sort of deities that are out there, but there's one supreme deity, right, Who's, who is kind of that deistic type deity. He's removed from everything, and he can't be connected to anything material at all. But then yeah. there are these other um, lesser, less powerful, maybe evil deities that are out there as well. So, yeah. yeah, so this is something that springs out of Gnosticism in some ways. Yeah, so you have we have Marcion who comes on the kind of forefront of really forcing the church's hand and saying, we've got to settle on what the canon is. Right. We've got to decide on what the New Testament books are going to be. And then on the other side of that is this guy Montanus, who shows up a few decades later with this self-proclaimed prophetic message from Jesus, um, which, again, I guess could, could... follow a little bit of Gnosticism, but mm. this, this was no small problem. This wasn't Montanus preaching and prophesying the message of Jesus. This was something new, and I think the the big issue was when he said, whoever opposes his message is blaspheming the Spirit. So obviously taking, taking Jesus's words there, I think, and, and then shoving them out of context to really put something that is essentially damning on mm. folks that would that would oppose him. So Montanus was putting Jesus in the back seat by giving a new message from the Holy Spirit, quote unquote, new message uh, that only he had gotten. And so Shelley's argument is this, the church had not ceased to believe in the power of the spirit, but they saw a difference between the times. In the first days, the spirit enabled authors to write the sacred books of the Christian faith. In the later days, the spirit enabled them to understand, interpret, and apply what was written. So Montanus was doing something entirely new, more or less adding on to the canon with this fresh fresh message. So instead of trying to cut stuff out of what already existed, Montanus was basically putting yeah. more down, to which the Christian churches responded by saying, no, these are the books yeah. and, and these alone. One thing I think it's uh, important to remember here is that these are not just individual people who are... Um, 
teaching these heretical things, there there are movements forming around them. Yeah. Um, like Shelley mentions with Marcion, I mean, there are Marcionite churches that start popping up that right. are kind of being built around his ideology. The same kind of thing happens with Monetus as well. Um, and, and so, or Montanus. And yeah, so so the church has to respond, not just because there's one crazy person saying crazy things, but because people are 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 coming to also believe those same things and it's becoming a movement mm-hmm. of sorts. Yeah. Man, I just heard you say Montanus and I want to go back and like re re-record everything I just said because now I'm realizing Montana sounds so silly. No. <laughs> I'm, I'm so glad you're here. Montanus is definitely the way that should be pronounced. I, I think you can go either way. Nah. Montanus. No, I took Greek. I should know better. If, if your name, if, if, if it was your last name. It would be you Montanus. Would, you would be Taylor Montanus. Yeah. Oh, absolutely. That's, not, that's my man name. <laughs> um, but anyway, that's kind of, that's where we land at the end of this uh, chapter is, is really settling on the canon. The, mm-hmm. the Old Testament canon, as we mentioned, was pretty well settled. Um, there are some differences, though not necessarily debated. Mm-hmm. The New Testament canon was not necessarily up for grabs either, but it hadn't been codified until some of these folks start popping out of the woodworks and really gaining traction in some of the heresies that they have. So the response to guys like Marcion and Montanus is to settle on the canon. Yeah. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So uh, he ends the chapter here by pointing out that the first, as we talked about a few moments ago, the first complete list of books, as we have them today, came in an Easter letter written in 367 by the Bishop Athanasius, Athanasius from Alexandria. And then shortly thereafter, within that same century, you have a council of the church uh, at Hippo in North Africa, and also in North Africa at a place called Carthage. And those councils publish the same list. And that's really the point where it's like, okay, these are the books, Mm -hmm. right? And there's no formal proclamation, to my knowledge, that the canon is now closed. But but this is just generally accepted to be the books of the New Testament at this point. This is Taylor Montanus signing (laughs) off. Signing off. (laughs) Ha, ha, ha.